I was listening to the playback of the last couple of episodes, Melissa. Mm-hmm. And I noticed that we talk for like 16 minutes before we throw the theme song on. <laughs> and it's not just talking. We're mostly solidly complaining for 16 minutes about how busy we are all the time, which like fair, but I don't know if that's w- what we want our podcast to be about. <laughs> right, right. Uh, and I mean, we got so into it last time that we actually forgot to say the catchphrase. Yeah, we forgot to say take a seat and we had to go back and dub it in later because <laughs> as i was editing i was like wait a second where do i put the theme music we didn't break for the theme music we just complained for 15 minutes and then we went straight into talking about the privy so we're we're gonna change it up this time around yeah we should just get right into it um what are we gonna talk about this episode we are going back to the list of finds that came out of the south privy at 103 Callow hill And deep diving on some of those. And we have a couple of really exciting announcements that we've been teasing for a couple of episodes now, so we should probably do those. All right, well, let's get to it. Take a seat, you're in the bug house. Back in 2019, when we were still processing the finds from the Privy Next Door, a.k.a. the 406 Front Privy, do you remember what that was like? Like, we were doing it all on the first floor of the building for the most part. Yeah, we were we were pretty overwhelmed. <laughs> I remember when we first dug the very first Privy and we got to the end of Six Feet and I thought, okay, that is enough. We have so much stuff. <laughs> This was on a scale I couldn't quite comprehend, even having left it sit in our first floor for, I don't know, a couple of weeks, a couple of months at this point. But right. it was, we had started to lay things out onto these long folding tables. Right. I had bought a ton of really cheap secondhand folding tables on Craigslist because I had hosted a kind of artist brainstorm in the theater. Before we demolished everything, I invited all of my super smart artsy friends around to like dream and think about what the theater could be one day as kind of an inspirational jumping off point. And uh, when we brought those tubs and crates and boxes of dirty shirts in from the 406 front privy, I busted the tables out again for the first time in a while and we laid all of the shirts out and cleaned them. That's right. We were cleaning them in the space at the time. We yeah. had buckets of water. And this was our first sort of mass attempt at cleaning shirts with, with help. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it was a little bit miserable because there wasn't much light in there. It was so dank. It was really dank. <laughs> And not in the cool, like, you know, young leftist dank way, but just like literally dank. Um, but we got it done. And after we had almost everything sorted, we started inviting, you know, some of the archaeologists who we had gotten in touch with over to have a look at our stuff. Like, I remember Ron Fuchs came over at one point. Oh, that's right. That's when we first met him. Yeah, yeah. And he, you know, did this cool tour where he was like looking at all of our shirts. And then... Debbie Miller. Who you may remember from a previous episode, I hope. (laughs) Our good friend and archaeologist extraordinaire came over with her husband, Dennis, who's also an archaeologist and curator 
at Stenton, actually. Uh, it's this historic house up in Germantown. I'm talking about it as though we've been there. We're terrible. We There was a pandemic. There was a pandemic. Was a pandemic. We haven't gotten a chance to go to Stenton and tour it properly, but Dennis is like the head person at Stenton. He's definitely the head person at Stenton. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and they also brought over their adorable daughter, Virginia, who I absolutely loved playing music with. She like spent a good... 45 minutes jamming with me on different instruments that I have lying around my house. So that was super duper fun. But yes, Debbie and Dennis came down into our dank first floor space and were picking up several different shirts and like telling us what they were. And uh, then at one point, I had some questions about a couple of shirts from the pile that didn't look like anything else we had. Yeah, we were still early on in the whole learning about ceramics side of things. And I think we knew enough to know that these were different. Yeah. You know, we had plenty of redware. We had plenty of pearlware and creamware and the sorts of normal things that you find in Philadelphia area privies. But this stuff, it, it looked weird. Yeah, it kind of looks rougher than the other shirts that we had. It's these chunky brown shirts they don't have any glaze on them and the quality of them is just kind of different like the way they break is crumblier and on the inside the clay isn't that bright red color of philadelphia redware it's like brown or even black on the inside it just it just looked really different right i remember thinking that they were maybe burnt right like maybe they had been dropped in a fire and sat in the fire and you know, had a chemical reaction that that caused them to look this way. But I also knew that I had no idea what I was talking about. Yeah, for sure. (laughs) Neither of us did. (laughs) We still kind of don't, but we are learning to fake it better and better every day. (laughs) So Debbie picks up the shirt and she looks at Dennis and she does one of these things. She's like, hey, look at this. Do you know what this is? (laughs) Yeah, I know what that is. Which which is... (laughs) So funny, because if you cast your mind back to the episode where Rob and Michelle came over, right? What happened then? Oh, it was the same thing. It was absolutely <laughs> the same thing. You know, Rob holding up a little piece of what we, we now know as Bonin and Morris. And I, I think it was the unglazed bit Yes, too, it was the quilted T-ball uh-huh. shirt. Do, do you know what that is? <laughs> <laughs> I, I Now I, I have a sample size of two, but I've come to believe that this is just a game that archaeologist couples do with each other where they pick things up and then they quiz each other on them or like play this coy kind of thing where they don't say the actual name of the thing that they're holding. and Which absolutely <laughs> triggers Melissa. <laughs> She she is just dying on the inside when this happens. It's funny. I, I can see it. But. I just get really frustrated when someone knows something and they're not telling me immediately. Like, I just, you know, <laughs> I, I've been spoiled by the internet where if you want to know something, you can Google it and you can pretty much know it. Uh, you know, watching television with Melissa, she will, five minutes into a show, look up the <laughs> Wikipedia entry on the show, learn how the entire series ends, <laughs> continues to watch the show. It doesn't spoil it. Look, no, what I'm saying, like, yeah. if you know how a show ends and it actually spoils it, then the show was no good. I'm all about the journey and not about the end. But, like, if I need to know something, I, I just, I need to find out immediately. So 
<laughs> I, I think that's fair. That's why I never bothered with Lost or Game of Thrones. I needed to know <laughs> when it finished if people were happy or sad. Yes, that's right. And I have saved so much of my life, saved so many hours not watching television that lied. <laughs> <laughs> well, we don't have time to watch TV anyway. I will go and read all of the uh, spoilers on a site where I can get all of the information in five minutes, just so I know what people are talking about. Yeah, there's only so much I've been able to derive from context, and especially now that uh, I, I work remotely, I, I don't have, like, banter in the office about whatever <laughs> people are watching now. I could fake it about, like, Game of Thrones and Breaking right. Bad. Yes. Um, but, but I just haven't really watched them at all. Um, anyway, so... Debbie and Dennis are playing this game, this coy game of, like, what is this object? And I turn into a screaming toddler where I'm like, can you please just tell me? Can you tell me? What the fuck is it? Just fucking tell me. Like, which Debbie and Dennis both take totally in stride because they have a young child. So I, you know, fit right into that dynamic. Um, (laughs) And then eventually Debbie relents and says the magic word, which is... Oh, well, it's Colinoware. Colinoware. Okay. Oh, duh. <laughs> Obviously. I have no idea what this term is. Is it referring to colons or is it referring to colonials? I still think it's a weird word. It's a strange it's, word. <laughs> there's there's a lot to unpack in the word colonoware. <laughs> So let's do a really quick overview of what exactly colonoware is. So the first thing we learned uh, after we learned the name of it was that Colono Ware is generally attributed to enslaved Africans and Native Americans. Although because these groups both were not folks who were able to record their history, uh, a lot of it is just kind of assumption based off of context. Right. What's really interesting to me about this type of ceramic is that the archaeological community only officially identified and categorized it in 1962, which is super recently, considering this stuff has been around for hundreds of years in America and was in use for hundreds of years. It was first identified by an archaeologist called Ivor Noel Hume, who has sadly passed away, but who we have been hearing about for years at this point, because like every single archaeologist that we have even mentioned briefly on this show seems to have worked with him, knew him, uh, adored him, you know, respected him. It seems like he was like super highly influential archaeologist. And he was finding a lot of this kind of pottery on the plantations and on digging the plantations in the south and presented this hypothesis, initially thinking that maybe it was made by Native Americans and traded into the enslaved populations for them to use. However, over time, that view kind of has changed. Now, the thought is, with this pottery, it was actually manufactured by these enslaved people for the most part, where it's been found archaeologically has been in the South, in the Carolinas. Mm-hmm. So the thought is not that it's been traded, but these are necessities used by people because civilization requires pottery. 
Right. It's this sort of fascinating thing, you know. Although I'm sure there was a certain amount of cultural cross-pollination between Native American communities and Black communities at the time. Why wouldn't you imagine that enslaved Black people would make their own putts? Pots are everywhere. There are African potting traditions. There are, you know, in every single place on earth, you actually require pots to have human civilization. Like, it's literally impossible to have human civilization without pots, without ceramics. It's like, as soon as you have dirt and a fire, <laughs> right, right. you're like, I'm going to make something useful. And they do. The thing that sets Colin Ware apart from the pottery that we were finding, you know, elsewhere in the Privy is that this population of people did not have access to high-powered kilns or to the kind of equipment that white potters were using, such as potting wheels. So instead, how were they making the pots? Well, they were making these pots by coiling rather than using a wheel. And this makes a lot of sense because it is a very traditional way of doing things before the invention of the potter's wheel for thousands and thousands of years. Right. Uh, people have been coiling. I did it myself in grade school. It's, it's the only way I pot. Um, and the interesting thing about it, though, is you take this clay, and it was also not very finely sifted clay either. Mm -hmm. Right. You know, they didn't have access to the really nice tools that they had here. So you get the clay as, as clean as you can, you roll it up into like snakes, mm -hmm. uh, you know, roll, roll a really long piece out. And then coil it into the shape that you want. And in order to get sort of a, a better, smoother appearance, you kind of knead it together. And as the clay hardens, because you, you have to let it get to sort of a leathery state before you do the, the proper firing, then they do what's called burnishing, where you take, a, you know, a pebble or rock or, or something to, to smooth it out and, again, knead out any bubbles or any imperfections in the surface before you then essentially kind of sit it in a fire. Right. If you don't have a proper kiln, you just use what you have around you and you have a fire around you, so you can do that. I actually totally made a coil pot also. I was in high school when I made my coil pot. I think Late I was... bloomer. <laughs> I've never thrown a pot on a wheel, but I have done a coil pot. And I remember my art teacher teaching us to burnish our pots also. I didn't glaze it and I used the back of a spoon. So in my head, like burnishing is like using the back of a spoon to go around in circles and smooth it out. And one of the purposes of burnishing is if you don't have access to the kind of chemicals that you can use in a glaze, burnishing helps make the pot a little less porous, like more impermeable, so you can store water in it and the water won't leach out so right. much. Uh, so, you know, to me, learning about Colin Ware is, it, it's fascinating from just a human perspective and the idea that these people had basically nothing that they could call their own, but the human need almost, the human instinct to take dirt from the ground and fashion it into an object and stick it in a fire and now you have an object that you can call your own is so strong that even with nothing they were making these vessels for themselves so here's the wild part um what is this doing in our privy before i answer that question 
we're going to do an announcement that we should have made like so long ago. <laughs> <laughs> While I was at work one day, Melissa took our Bonin and Morris finds over to Debbie Miller when she was working at, she was still at the, the bank? The first bank, yeah. The first bank. And this would have been like late 2016, <laughs> I think. Like, holy shit. That was a really long time ago now. <laughs> What is time? It's impossible to comprehend. I don't get it. It's a flat circle or a coil. Yeah, so she photographed our Bonin and Morris finds. And uh, I think, like, they told us at the time the reason for this photography, but I don't think I grasped the enormity of what was happening. (laughs) And the funny thing is, we didn't know that it got published. (laughs) The reason they were photographing Albonin and Morris finds was because they wanted to include them as a pictorial figure in the 2017 edition of Ceramics in America, the incredible journal, which is edited by Rob Hunter, our friend. Oh, and Angelica. And Angelica Kettner, who we haven't introduced on this show yet, but we've met fairly recently actually in the last few months so yeah i think because you know what is time we didn't actually even find out about the i was i was doing random google searches related to the ceramics that we were finding trying to find more examples and i saw our name and address <laughs> in a google search result and click through to a semi-published version of it online so the photos weren't displayed but sure enough the caption uh, the caption the was, caption was says saucer comma american china manufactory philadelphia pennsylvania 1770 to 1772 this is the saucer with the little racist chinese man on it that i have mentioned i think many many times it's a bond and morris saucer but it doesn't have the little P on the bottom because there are these sort of scabby mistakes on the bottom. And the assumption is that it was a factory second. Yeah, this one's from the bargain bin, for right. sure. So it says, soft paste porcelain, diameter five and a half inches, courtesy Matthew and Melissa Dunphy, photo Deborah Miller. This saucer, along with a similar punch bowl, was recently excavated from a privy at 103 Callow Hill Street in the Northern Liberties. The punch bowl is marked P on the base. They are the most recent examples of Bonin and Morris to be discovered. <laughs> so, so we're published. <laughs> it's our plate. I feel the sense of ownership over this plate like it's a child of mine now. Like, Oh, I love it. Oh, little plate, you made it into the book. You made it into the magazine. (laughs) And I I don't think I've talked about this in the podcast, but anybody who's followed us on social media knows that I recreated these images on mugs. I drink at least once a week. I've got a mug with this image on it. (laughs) Yeah, it's a pretty awesome mug. And uh, stay tuned because we're going to have ways for you to buy that mug again soon on our merchandise store on Etsy. Funny story. So I pulled out this edition of Ceramics in America shortly after Debbie had revealed this word, Colin Aware. And I looked at the article again. I probably look at it all the time, you know, like <laughs> like Gollum, so Gollum yeah. pulling out the ring and being like, my precious article. Um, so the article itself is by two very familiar names, 
Debbie Miller and Jed Levin, both of whom we've interviewed on this show. And on the previous page of that same article... Right there. Right there, there is a heading, Colonoware in the City. Yeah, funnily enough, this article is just titled Philadelphia. Um, <laughs> and it's, it's about fines in Philadelphia. And there's several paragraphs, a couple pages here, titled Colonoware in the City. And uh, I'm going to do a little bit of transformation here. We're going to violate copyright. <laughs> Uh, an, an audiobook this Please for you don't sue right us, <laughs> Debbie or Jed or Rob or Angelica. <laughs> Even though urban archaeology is fairly predictable, especially on large scale projects involving multiple house lots along major streets in a city, we are sometimes surprised by what we find, especially when we are not at all expecting it. Yeah, tell me about it. <laughs> um, one such surprise came during the excavation of the National Constitution Center site when the first examples of colonoware were recovered in Philadelphia. Colonoware is a hand-built, unglazed, low-fired earthenware that most often mimics European utilitarian formats. It was first described in 1962 by Ivor Noel Hume as colono-Indianware and was believed to have been made by Native Americans but used by enslaved Africans. Archaeologists quickly came to recognize that people of African descent, both enslaved and free, were also immediately involved in both the use of and the manufacture of this unique fusion of African, European, and Native American pottery traditions. It's so cool. Okay, read the little caption because that was the part that made me go, holy shit, are you fucking kidding me? <laughs> yeah, there's a photo of a colonoware pot and it's exactly the same style as we have. Mm -hmm. So the caption next to this, figure 17 for those following at home, <laughs> um, cooking pot, comma, Philadelphia, comma, Pennsylvania, late 18th century, earthenware. Colonware is exceedingly rare in the archaeological sites north of the Chesapeake, and fewer than 100 examples have been excavated in Philadelphia. This partial vessel is the largest and most intact example to be recovered in the city to date. <laughs> I am laughing because, okay, uh, first of all, Fewer than 100 examples in the entire city have been found. And uh, we didn't have just one example out of that privy. There were, I think, three out of that privy. Three ex three sherds from different pots, I think. Sherds from pots. And we right. were a little unsure about one that ended up being French. <laughs> <laughs> That's true, right? But one of the pots that... Um, one of the partial pots that we reconstructed is... About as whole as that piece that's right there, right, in the picture. We give it a run for its money on size. We do. We do, which is, like, really exciting to me. So why are we talking about Colonoware right now? We're talking about it because, as you may have guessed, some Colonoware also showed up in the 103 South Privy as we were processing the finds. And not just any old Colonoware. Like, you know, Colonoware comes in several different types from very, very plain pots that you probably wouldn't get that excited about if you didn't know the significance. To, in the 19th century, Colonoware was developed by enslaved African 
entrepreneurs almost into something of a, a unique art form. Oh, right, yeah. There's an incredible potter. You can go look him up. His name is Dave Drake or Dave the Potter. He could also read and write and he would actually sign his pots with fun little rhymes or sayings and his name. And these huge pots you can now find in major museums all over the country. There's kind of been, I think, a well-deserved interest in Dave the Potter's works. But the pot that we found in the 103 South Privy, how would you describe this pot? It was hard to really pick it out of the pile because it almost looked like charcoal. Yeah, which... (laughs) Like, why does everything look like something else? It's so <laughs> frustrating. Like, creamware looks like oyster shells. Redware looks like bricks. And this culinary pot looks like fucking charcoal. Right. It's it's <laughs> it's super black and super thin and crumbly. And when we put together a lot of the little bits and pieces, it stood out from any other culinary ware that we found. I'm acting like I found tons of culinary ware. I haven't. I found like three pieces and this is the fourth. But... <laughs> But in addition to the color of it being this incredibly dark, almost ebony black color, there was decoration on it. Yeah, there's like a shark tooth kind of wave going around the outside of the pot. Right. And then further down the pot, there are these swirls. Like it's almost like whoever was making it got super creative with the burnishing. Yeah. And burnished it smooth and then took whatever they were burnishing it with and made this swirly pattern that's unlike anything else that I've seen on another pot or on any of the pictures of Colin O'Ware online. We've been looking ever since. And since obviously everything's on the internet, uh, I'm pretty sure that we've got the only one that looks like this. (laughs) Everything is on the internet, right, guys? Right? Um, listen, if you have a pot like this, can you please tell us? Oh, the other amazing thing is that there's decoration on the inside. Yeah, it's, it's as really well as cool. the outside. Yeah. And it has these tiny little, almost ring like handles. I should say handle singular because we've only found one of the handles on that part of the rim. And my assumption is that you would tie like a rope or a piece of wire around those handles and use it like like you would think of a cauldron mm-hmm. almost. But it's so cool because we don't have much of a record of what black people were around our neighborhood or on our property. Yeah, we're lucky if we get a name. Right. It's usually some Greek name. Well, we have one name from Daniel Williams. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if you cast your mind back to the Daniel Williams episode, at the end of his life, he left money in his will for old Daphne, a servant. Mm-hmm. We don't have absolute definitive proof of this, but I think you can pretty safely assume that this was the enslaved woman that he had freed several years earlier and had kept on as a servant. So could this pot have belonged to one of Daniel Williams's enslaved people? Or was there another enslaved person who was in the area? Who was using this pot? Where did it come from? Did they make it themselves? Was it someone who had traveled from the South? There are so many questions, but I just find it so, like, I don't know. I get emotional thinking about it. 
Yeah, I feel so lucky that we found this. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think other archaeologists would probably agree. I think they're probably a little bit jealous of us <laughs> in the <laughs> nicest possible way. But I'm super excited to study this more and get this pottery into the hands of more experts who can maybe tell us more about it. Right. We've learned so much in the past few years by sharing this information online and through the generosity of other folks who are you know, professionals in the field helping us learn, we help other folks learn, and I'm hoping that in another few years we may have more answers and more information about these things that that started out as little chips of pottery that we mistook for burnt wood. <laughs> yeah, yeah, let's put that history back up. A lot of the sherds from this Colliner Ware pot we actually discovered in the second sift of the dirt from the 103 South Privy. Hey, hang, hang on. Now you're using words that we haven't told them. <laughs> <laughs> we, we call this internally the second sift. The second sift. Okay, so what was the second sift? Right, we had dug out and excavated the full 19 and a half feet of this privy and had huge piles of dirt down on the first floor. Right, and to get those piles of dirt, we sifted out all of the artifacts using half-inch screen. That's right. Well, almost all of the artifacts. We knew as we were going through that we were missing things, whether they were too small and passing through the screen or just it's hard. There's a lot in every screen full. Yes. And especially at the bottom of the privy, the mud was so claggy and sticky that it was sticking to the artifacts and it was like actually hard to even see some of the artifacts because they just looked like huge clumps of dirt. They were embedded in clay. Yeah. And so we would have to sort of roll them around and it was it was challenging. It was rough going. Yeah. yeah. Um, so we had made a pact after we had gotten all of the dirt out of the privy. Instead of throwing all of the dirt back into the privy immediately, because we were capable of you know, having an open hole in our first floor for a really long time. Right. We're we're the weirdos who have an archaeological dig in their house. So it's it's protected from the weather. Right. It's protected from whatever else might threaten Ran it. random children or uh -huh. dogs falling in it and right. dying. It doesn't matter that there's a nineteen foot hole in our, our floor because we're adults. So we said we would come back and sift all of that dirt, re-sift it with a smaller screen so that we could catch some of these artifacts that we knew fell out of the screen and we would also give the dirt some time to dry so it would be easier to sift that claggy, claggy dirt. Well, before we fill it in, I had a very important task we both actually had to take care of and that was making sure that if anybody found this privy sometime in the future, they would be recipients of what I'm hoping to be a centuries-long prank. <laughs> um, we, we have so much stuff that we've broken over the years. Uh, and things, actually, honestly, I, I have hard drives dating back to the first computer that I owned that I just haven't thrown away for no good reason. Right. Like, it's, it's not like there's sensitive data on there. So but what I just did we do was with toting those? this along. <laughs> and this was the perfect opportunity to get rid of these things. So we started throwing our stuff down the privy. 
We actually made a video of this, which we will release at some point. But it's basically, we threw some of our own ceramics down there, as Matt mentioned. Things mm-hmm. we had broken, things we didn't really want anymore. We tossed a few wine bottles down there. Little chintzy things that we had collected over the years. Oh, I definitely put plastic down there with our names on it. Oh, that's right. Yeah, we had those name, those, uh, what do you call them? Name signs from our previous places of employment. Right, those little Velcro-y, it's plastic with Velcro on the back that you put in your cubicle. Right, and yeah. Mine was from the York Newspaper Company. And mine was from, I think, the PBS station I worked at. <laughs> right, it's, it's important in media to have your name in plastic. That's right. Um, <laughs> we dumped those down there so that people will know our names (laughs) because that would have been really great for us i would have loved to get just a single name this is literally what i was thinking of was if i were an archaeologist 300 years in the future what would i absolutely love to see down a privy i don't think i put any coins down there Oh, that was foolish of us. Oh, well. Oh, well. Well, it's still, it, it'll be good because... It'll be fun anyway. <laughs> yeah, we, we and we would do it in layers, right? Right. You know, this is the kind of thing that is, as you go, <laughs> it's like, what's going on? It's going to be a lot of fun. And they'll see some hard drives and they'll see some some good stuff. We'll make that video and then everybody can see. And hopefully, you know, if the world doesn't completely implode, there'll actually be a record of this dumb prank that we play. That would be amazing. <laughs> That would be really weird. And um, then we have something really sad to talk yeah, about. This is, this is a weird segue. Also happened we, we around the same time. something else to put down the privy. Oh, my God. <laughs> so. You may have noticed that uh, in the last couple of episodes, we haven't had to flee from our microphones to clean up poo on the bathroom floor. Right. Um, and it's because, very sadly, in February of 2021, our beloved stupidest cat in the entire world (laughs) but very sweet moonlight passed on she died actually in our arms which was somewhat traumatic it was yeah it was uh, it was a little we've had a few cats over the years and they usually get to the point where it's magic needle time right yeah take them to the vet you you have an emotional thing i say you specifically because this always (laughs) happens when i'm at work I haven't, I haven't had to deal with this. Melissa's always calling me like, I think it's time. I think this is... Right. She's she's collapsing or, you know, whatever. You know, everybody has these stories, right? But Moonlight, you know, it was the middle of the pandemic. All this shit was going on. Uh, we had taken her to the vet a few times and then she... She got an infection yeah. and just sort of kind of went downhill for a little while and then it was it was very sudden yeah it, she literally had a heart attack and died in the space of about 60 seconds and both of us were just traumatized holding her i mean i think i had been like screaming her name as if i could call her back from death's door you were, i was telling you to get the cat carrier because we maybe were gonna we could take her to the vet real quick right, rush and then to while emergency. you were looking for the carrier she uh, she passed on yeah it was really sad um, and you know, both of us were sort of crying and really upset, and then through our tears, <laughs> through, like, like, through our tears, we were like, "Well, what do we do now?" We, we looked, know what we have to do. We looked at each other and we're like, "We have to put her in the privy." She has to go in the privy. <laughs> <laughs> if you can see us right now, we're both actually crying. <laughs> we're both 
like still really upset about this. So we found her a little box and we took her downstairs and then we realized like the privy was still pretty much completely empty. And the thought of like tossing a box oh my God. with her, even though she's dead, she can't feel it. But both of us were just like, I can't just throw her in the privy. So we like got we some tied a little rope, right? Like a little wire and rope and lowered her slowly down into the privy. Um, and then we were like, well, you know, what have we got to cover her up with? Like, we can't just leave her in the box at the bottom of the privy. She'll smell and it'll be a bad scene. Um, There's a reason why you bury the dead. Right. Um, so we, we couldn't just throw the dirt down there because th- there might be artifacts. Right. So we're both like, we be- well, we had some rocks, but we were like, I can't throw rocks. I'm not throwing rocks. I'm not on- throwing rocks on top of my dead cat. So <laughs> this is like, we're such cat people. My God. And so both of us like weeping are like sifting some dirt <laughs> so that we could get some clean dirt. To like throw on top Enough of so moonlight. so that it like covers it. Because we know we're going to cover, we're, we're going to be doing more of this sifting anyway. And it was February. So it's not like, you know, the, the, the heat of summer. Right. It was just enough to make sure that she had a decent burial. And at that depth, we'll probably not be disturbed by anybody but archaeologists. Hopefully. Right. So future archaeologists, when you get to Moonlight's bones, please treat her with respect. This would be so amazing <laughs> if I was some future archaeologist and I knew about this podcast that told this history. And <laughs> they come across this site and they're like, that's the cat that shit on the podcast. Oh my God, it's Moonlight. It's <laughs> we, li- <laughs> we have audio of how bad her poop smells on the <laughs> See, I'm not a total pessimist. I do believe there is a future, potentially. That's true. It could happen. (laughs) Well, the other thing that we threw in the privy actually was parts of the sifter. (laughs) (laughs) Not Um, not that night, but a little earlier. Yeah. Uh, Michael has lent us his amazing sifting machine. Right. It's it's this wonderful contraption with hinges and wheels. We talked about it in a previous episode. I think I described it as like an industrial-sized sifter. And when we had finished the initial dig and sift, we were exhausted mentally and physically, and we just left the sifter in the dirt pile. Um, (laughs) The dirt pile, as it turns out, is very much alive. Uh, When Michael asked if he could borrow it back for a weekend i was like yeah sure no problem i went downstairs lifted it up and it had just completely rotted out like (laughs) the wood that was in the dirt was no more (laughs) it was just completely gone like bacteria had completely eaten all of the wood (laughs) and i was able to pretty quickly because it's made of studs like two by fours pretty quickly recreated the legs except i needed a bolt for it and that's when I killed our car. (laughs) You didn't kill it. It killed itself. I did a three-point turn, and the automatic transmission had a little trouble going from reverse to forward, and I I heard it. I heard it, Uh, but it wasn't until I got about a mile away that it just kind of stopped shifting. (laughs) And I'm I'm like, shit. I'm like, I, I really... Michael did this wonderful thing, letting us borrow his sifter, and I broke it, and I can't even get the last piece to fix it, and the car's broken. Oh my gosh, it was such a bad night. I limped it back and tried to get Melissa to, like, push it into a parking space uphill, because it couldn't reverse. (laughs) It's literally like, you're trying to kill me. This car, it's a Dodge Magnum. It's Latin for big. Like, (laughs) I weigh... 
maybe 115 pounds soaking wet at my like largest pandemic weight. Long story short, we officially replaced both the Mini Cooper and the Dodge Magnum. So Little and Big are now gone. And we have a Ford Transit Connect. Yes, we have a van. <laughs> Boom of the beal. <laughs> yeah, when I looked this up, Melissa found an amazing deal on one that's like the platinum, no, titanium edition. <laughs> Is titanium better than platinum? I have uh, no idea. It's all about context, I think. <laughs> um, and it apparently had sat in a lot too long because it had one seat missing, which is great because we're going to take the seats out anyway. We right. did take the seats out. And uh, I went to research it after we bought it. Like, how did they market this? And it's literally there at the Chicago Auto Show. Like, we built the perfect vehicle for boomers. <laughs> I'm like, why do I love it so much? <gasps> oh, no. Am I the <laughs> Am boomer? I the boomer? <laughs> what happened? Oh, no. So that's how in the middle of the pandemic, I guess it was like in January of 2021, we managed to buy a new car. It was like very strange. It was the least expensive Ford Transit on the market, mm -hmm. but the most blinged out Ford Transit on the market. And it was just well, like, again, this happened with selling our Downingtown house, too. We got so fucking lucky because it was right before all of the car inventory went away because the chips weren't coming from China. It just evaporated. And so we managed to get this van at this really good price. My God, well, like, Ugh. truly, like, you know, I was super fucking fortunate. Um, anyway, what did we find in the second sift? Of course, because the screen that we're using to find objects is quarter inch instead of half inch, the items that we're finding were generally smaller. But we were super surprised by how many, how many large <laughs> shirts we were also finding. And I mean, you know, I talked, we talked earlier about how they were encrusted in clay, but some of it was like embarrassing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There were, there were definitely pieces in the spoil pile that were like, how did, how did that get here? This right. is the size of my fist. Right. This is like a massive. It's not encrusted in dirt. This is a handle with part of a chamber pot attached right. to it. How the fuck did we miss it. this? <laughs> You know, some of them, some of them I give myself some, like, okay, there's a good reason we didn't see this. We had to rush that dig um, because, you know, people were trying to help us and we wanted to be careful of their time. And we right. wanted to get to the bottom of the privy and be out of being inside the hole as quickly as possible so that there was less danger. Like, the more time you spend in the hole, the more chance there is of something going wrong. <laughs> you know what I mean? Life pro tip. Um <laughs> That, that doesn't need to be in there. That's fine. No, I totally know what you mean. Um. Anyway, uh, so the stuff that we started getting that was tiny was awesome. One of the first things that I remember finding is a little glass bead. It's this little black and white stripey thing. It's like Beetlejuice's jacket. It's, that, that's what I, I looked. I'm like, this is a little goth bead. It's like the, the size. I, I don't even know what to compare it to. It's like... A couple of grains of rice. Yeah, I mean, it's like just above a quarter of an inch. So that's how it didn't fall through mm -hmm. the screen that we were using. What we have discovered is this was the first of many Native American trade beads that we would find. Trade beads generally tend to be of the size that would fall through a half inch screen but you can catch them in a quarter inch screen. And this is like super exciting, I yeah, think. I mean, I mean, we're making the assumption they're trade beads. 
Um, yeah, well, I mean, I've found I've seen beads exactly like these documented on digs that are specifically looking at like Native American artifacts that have been found. Right, right. Um, and there's records of, you know, Mohawk tribe using these beads to trade. And so, you know, I'm just like, of course, Native Americans were in Philadelphia during yeah. the 1700s. Like they were in society. You we know? were one of the only cities in the colonies that didn't need a wall because we had a treaty. Right. And so, of course, these things are floating around. And, you know, how they ended up in our privy, we don't really know. No but idea. they did. Yeah. <laughs> and, yeah. And a bunch of different ones. I soon after that found a little tiny orange glass bead. And it almost looks like a sequin. Right. It's like a disc shape. Yeah. And this just made it like, uh, we, we have to sift this. We have to take our time. I don't want to miss a single bead. And we found probably, I don't know, at least four more, I think, out of this privy. Yeah. Some were blue glass faceted beads. There's like one that's black and round uh, and one that's a really pale blue glass faceted, just like the darker blue ones. It's just so cool to think about, you know, where these beads have come from. They're probably from Italy originally. They're probably Venetian, perhaps, mm -hmm. or from Murano or something like that. And then they are, they are brought to the Americas and used as a form of currency. Right. And then they end up in the privy. So cool. My favorite find of the second sift, I think, <laughs> is something that... I knew exactly what it was when I picked it up. You may know already that I have a thing for finding teeth in the privy. I've been selling them online in our Etsy store. I've been turning them into jewelry. But they've all been animal teeth until I picked up <laughs> a little tooth in the screen and went, oh, motherfuck, this is a human molar. 100%, this is a human tooth. Oh, without a doubt. It was immediately evident. <laughs> yeah. And when I turned it over, I saw that it had a perfect, massive cavity in the actual tooth. So, so it was like three quarters of the crown was there, but one quarter, uh, it, it just must have been so awful. So painful. Like you can see it hit the nerve cavity <sighs> in the tooth. So this person was in incredible pain. And so they yanked that tooth out and threw it in the toilet, which actually makes a lot of sense to me. Yeah. You know, <laughs> like, fuck that tooth, throw it in the fucking toilet. <laughs> so this is my first kind of identifiable human body artifact. Right. That we have. And just like everything else in the privy, it tells a really specific story. <laughs> <laughs> the second sift also yielded more coins. Now I say more coins because we actually found a couple of coins in the first sift. I don't remember we talked about them. I don't think we did. I think we were leaving coins to this episode. Oh, good, good. <laughs> and the ones that we've already found were pretty exciting. The first one I think that we recognized as a coin and not a button mm -hmm. because we always pull out buttons and we think they're coins. So many buttons. And they're buttons. <laughs> um, uh, was it, it was weird. It was bent like the front where the face was, was all kind of chewed on or something. Like it was scraped. Mm -hmm. And you could see a little bit of copper on it, but it was, I don't know, it clinked wrong. It sort of looked like, like I think I would have thought of it as pewter. Like it's got that kind of yeah. sheen to it. It was like pewter or zinc or, or something. 
Anyway, we cleaned it up and there was enough of an impression on the back that we were able to look up the back of it. And this was a British halfpence. Okay. Uh, it said Britannia on the back. It had a picture of Britannia. Right. There's like one or two letters you can make out on, yeah. the, on the impression still. And it's amazing how with a couple of key things, a couple of letters, the width, you can actually really find coins pretty easily, all things considered, again, through the magic of the internet. However, it didn't make sense that it, it was this material, this lead or whatever. That's where in researching, I found a blog entry or an internet post, a page, like an old school web page mm-hmm. about counterfeit coins in Philadelphia found while digging I-95. <gasps> so cool and topical. <laughs> and again, the wonders of the internet, I emailed the guy who ran this, a fellow named Lou Jordan. And he sent me a paper about these coins. And it turns out what they had found was a hoard of unused coins. They were lead or pewter coated in copper. They were kind of terrible copies, and that's why nobody used them. So they like, didn't fool people. Like, that's how bad they were. <laughs> yeah, it was, you know, they, they tried a batch, and this brought it all together. Because uh-huh. this is right where we are. Uh-huh. Is it the I-95 dig close to Penn Treaty Park? Do you remember? Honestly, I couldn't find specifics on where in I-95 sure. they, they found this batch of Somewhere coins. on the corridor. <laughs> right. Like it was in the active part of Philadelphia at the time. And these were made to look like George II coins. They were designed to be like they're old and they're just kicking around. Right. right? <laughs> you know, wouldn't be questioned if they were being used. But as I often invoke in person when I talk about several things that we've found, I said, as the future curator of an independent museum, I get to just make shit up. <laughs> and what I see when I see this coin, this counterfeit, is like the Scrooge McDuck thing. Somebody has dropped this coin on the table. It clinked wrong. And the shopkeeper, the merchant who has seen all kinds of coins because he's right on the edge of the river, is like, what is that? He puts it in his mouth and bites it. And it bends because it's lead. It's too soft. It's too soft. And he's like, all right, come back again. This is bullshit, you know, whatever, and throws it in the privy. And hey, if you visit pretty much any deli in Philadelphia today, (laughs) you will often see behind the counter, the shop owner has pinned up examples of counterfeit notes that people have tried to pass in, you know, the deli or the convenience store around Philadelphia. I've seen this in a bunch of different places so nothing changes. <laughs> no, I went to the, the River Wards Produce Place just opened up and I went in to see what it was like and I paid with the 20 and the guy held it up to the light and I, on the inside, I felt a little insulted. <laughs> but it's the reality of what they have to deal yeah, with. Yeah, no, for sure. Seriously. So the thing about this that Lou Jordan said that I, I thought was really interesting and maybe he found it even more interesting, they have not found one in circulation. All mm. of the... All of the counterfeits that they had found were made and discarded. Like, they right. were like this is terrible. So this is the first one in archaeological context <gasps> that has been found as having been used and disposed of. Right. So uh, yeah, rewriting the history books again here at the Hell Boghouse. Yeah! <laughs> oh my gosh, so exciting! Uh, we also found a little tiny black coin. It was so thin. That I was, like, really scared of cleaning it, actually, because 
oh gosh, is this going to crumble when I try to clean it? And for all of you who are like, don't clean old coins, look, there's no value in what we're finding. Yes, like, first of all, there's yeah. no value. And second, you got to understand that this stuff is so encrusted with dirt that you can't read them. So if you <laughs> can't, if, and dirt and uh, oxidation, mm-hmm. like you cannot even read them. They're like practically concreted on. So we have to clean it a little bit, at least to the point where we can see what this coin is if it's even a coin usually we start to see patterns and then we convince ourselves that we're not just seeing things because we've had one experience at least where we were cleaning something that we thought was a coin and it turned out to be just like scratches on it and it was just a plain button like super weird and embarrassing (laughs) but this we once again were able to uncover like maybe three letters yeah just enough detail And it turned out to be a Spanish real made of silver. What? And it's smaller than a dime. Like, it's the smallest coin I think I've held. It's tiny. It's super thin. Not so thin as to be delicate, but pretty close. Of course, the first thing I did was run to eBay and be like, how much is this worth? Have I just ruined a coin? And it's fine. At its most, this coin in this condition would be worth like 15 to 20 bucks. So it's really not a big deal. If it was perfect, it would be worth more. Sure. But it's like very, very far from mint condition. Right. It's barely a coin. (laughs) Uh, But it's cool because it's actually a very old coin. So those were the two coins we found during our first sift. The Spanish Real is really hard to date, though, right? Because they were making that coin for a really yeah. long time and there wasn't a date on it. So we, uh, not one that we could figure out because it was so degraded. It was so degraded. Yeah. So on our second sift, we found a couple more coins. And the crazy thing about this was, you know, we had been sifting for days and days, like every weekend when we weren't busy or injured or <laughs> whatever we would sift. And then on two consecutive days, like on a Saturday and a Sunday that we were sifting, we found a coin on each of those days in the dirt. And these coins are significant, especially because they really mark the old and new ends of the finds that we uncovered. Like, because they, spoiler, they have dates or almost dates. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so the first coin that we found, it was, again, extremely degraded, copper coin, very small, and it's about the size of a modern penny, I would say. And we're cleaning it off, and you could get most of the corrosion off it, but you could tell that the coin had been in circulation for a really long time and was so degraded that the image that was on it was almost not even there. Like, we were shining lights sideways on it, and, like... We could see there was a head. The outline very, very faintly of a head, some of it worn completely flat. And then as we sort of cleaned, we were able to get a couple of letters... And then a couple of numbers. You know, I went on the internet and I spent maybe an hour looking at different coins from this period and figured it out. It is a French liard. I'm probably saying that wrong. It's probably like liard. (laughs) I'm not even going to try French pronunciation. It's like lizard without the Z, right? It was the lowest denomination French coin possible at this time. And the numbers that we could see on it said one, six, nine, and then the last number 
was gone completely. So this is a French liad from 1690 something, which is wild. That's so crazy. <laughs> It is the oldest dated object that we have right. from our privy or datable, I guess, object. Probably the stone axe head that we found is older, but we can't date that properly.、Mm-hmm. So this is very dateable, sixteen ninety something French liard. And my assumption about this coin is that because the French liard was such a almost worthless coin, that because it was about the same size as a Georgian farthing, but it was worth less than a Georgian farthing. It's kind of the equivalent of when you find a Canadian penny in the change that you get, and you're like, "Ah,、oh, motherfucker!" <laughs> Who slipped that in? <laughs> I can't. Been going use on、this. for hundreds of years in in North America, the, right? The Canadian penny. That <laughs> <laughs> this is the equivalent of that. But then, of course, the question is like, you know, when we first found it, of course, the first thought that pops into your head is like, the privy can't possibly be that old. And it can't. Like、right. this area was not developed until 1745 at the very earliest. But this coin—I mean, think about it. You've all found an old coin in your wallet. You know, you can find a coin even now that's like 50 years old in your wallet. So my assumption is that this 1690-something French liard had been kicking around Philadelphia for a really long time. Maybe someone found it in the street, picked it up, thinking it was a farthing. And then when they got it home, they were like, "What the fuck? This is a Canadian penny. <laughs> this is useless. Fuck this!" And they just threw it in the toilet. <laughs> Not even worth the melt. <laughs> and then the next day, this other coin came out. Yeah, another coin. We brought it up, and again, it was copper, and it was pretty crusty on one end.、Uh, the other side. Showed some promise, so we we took it upstairs and we started cleaning it. And、uh, actually, I think it was you, Melissa, who saw yeah what it said on that. <laughs> I was like scraping away the little crusty oxidation, and a little bit of it lifts up, and my heart kind of did this weird flip <laughs> because I saw the words one cent, and I was like, Mah. <laughs> When did Americans start making pennies that had the words one cent on them? And you know, Matt looked it up, and then I kept going on this penny, and I found an Indian head. So it's an Indian head penny. And then I kept going, and I managed to get the date, and I was so shocked. The date said nineteen oh seven, which. Adds a couple of years to what I thought, what we thought, was when the privy would have been sealed up. We've been talking、yeah. about, oh, it must have been 1905 when it got sealed up because of the new owners and all that.、Uh, impossible, right? So now we know for a fact that the privy was open until at least 1907. So you know. 1907 plus a few years, maybe even perhaps, unless they dropped a brand new penny down there. We don't really know. There's a map from 1910, I think, that has the extended building. Okay, so somewhere between 1907 and 1910, the privy was filled, and the concrete slab that forms the sort of slab on grade that's the floor of our first floor was poured. 
I mean, it's such a small, stupid thing, but I'm like, no, no, this is so good. We're getting so much more information about our building. (laughs) Just from this one little date change, we know that Frederick Nordhaft kept the building as it was, or, you know, at least the privy open for a couple of years after he bought it. Yeah. This is very cool. To have that back to back like that was was really special. It was, (laughs) it, it really showed the breadth of what the people had seen who've been using this this house this property oh my gosh speaking of dates okay this is a funny story (laughs) (laughs) and and dates have been a thing we talked about that a little bit just add a date to what it is you're creating right put a fucking date on your plate i Um, still see it honestly when we go to like the clay studio people sign their stuff and they they don't date it they don't date them and these new pieces of pottery which have the potential to last hundreds of years from now will only be able to be dated to a, a decade or two. Right. If that. If that. Right. <laughs> it's fine. I'm I'm just a weirdo. <laughs> so we had been cleaning these sheds from the 103 South Privy for a really long time and sorting them and assembling them. We had them in piles and buckets and tubs all over the house. And I had begun the job of assembling the different pots from, for example, the huge pile of redware shirts. And this is like peak pre-vaccine COVID time. (laughs) Right, right. This was like January 2021. I had begun to assemble this pan that I had kind of in the back of my head dismissed as the ugliest fucking pan I've ever seen in my life. Like, it's just a very boring redware pan. It looked like it had some slip on it, but I could tell because all of the edges were really burned that it had broken during cooking or been thrown on the fire at some point. And usually when that's happened to a pot, I'm not going to get all of the pot, like... Parts of it are going to be destroyed or Mm. crumbled up Mm. or something or, you know, I I just knew that this pan wasn't going to be whole and I was disappointed with it. Plus, it was ugly. The slip is chipping off. Yeah. It was was in bad shape. It it saw a lot of use. You could see where the the knives and the forks had been scraping into the lead glaze. (laughs) (laughs) And they were eating it. Right. (laughs) So it sat on my coffee table waiting for more shirts to connect it for like Three months, I swear to God. It sat on the coffee table. I couldn't be bothered moving it because it's kind of big. I didn't want to, like, throw it in a tub and forget about it. But it also wasn't really coming together. And it just sat there looking sort of sad. Covered in blue masking tape, which is what I use to make sort of preliminary joins before I can glue things together. And one night, you know, I was procrastinating going to bed by probably watching bad TV. And you know, putting some shirts together. And Matt comes in to get me to come to bed, which is our usual nighttime routine. Matt comes in and says, I'm going to bed. It's really late. And I'm like, oh, fine. And I I sort of looked at this pan and I said to Matt, man, I wish this pan was more exciting than it is. Like, look at the weird, like, haphazard slip that's kind of, you know, chipping off, but you can kind of see where it went on the surface. Like, it, it's a really ugly pan. It's kind of stupid. Wouldn't it be great if, like, this little stroke of slip right here was, like, I don't know, a letter or a number? Like, what if that was a one? And what if this this <laughs> angle next to it was, like, a seven? And what if this next bit was a 
was a five. Oh, shit. Is that a five? <laughs> and, and the next one, like both of us. It just like <laughs> appeared before our eyes simultaneously. We're like, it's a, it's a seventeen fifty fucking five. It has a date on it. <laughs> this fucking pan that I had on my coffee table that I've been staring at for three for months. months. For months. It was so, like, beat up and burned and messed up that I couldn't see the date that was written on it that was clearly, like, uh, like slip-trailed onto the pan. And, yeah, both of us, I mean, we just started screaming because <laughs> it's the first piece of pottery that we've ever found that has an actual date on it. Immediately, you know, I, I took all the blue masking tape off so I could see it more clearly and then became totally obsessed with this pan for 24 hours. What else hours. did we miss? You're right. So I'm staring at this pan and, you know, a lot of it is missing. Like I said, like this pan was, we didn't find all of it in the privy. So there's like chunks of it missing. But underneath the date, there was this sort of blob of slip that had been chipped away. Mm-hmm. I'm staring at it going like, what could this be? Is it like a really misshapen flower? Right. Like, what is that? I can't even tell. And then the next day, I'm staring at it, and it just resolved itself in my head. It's a bird. Like a dove, right? Like, I guess it's a dove? It's the kind of bird you see on slipware. <laughs> um, it's Germanic, I would say. It reminded me of the bird's that you see on decorations in Amish hex oh. signs or whatever they are, they're called. I, th- I think it's supposed to be a dove. It's not like an eagle-shaped bird. You know <laughs> right, what I mean? Right. Like, And you can see that the white slip that's all sort of degraded was its body and the shape of its wing. The black uh, decoration, decoration forms its beak and its legs. Right. I just couldn't believe it. After sitting and wishing... For animals and dates on my pans at the beginning of this whole process, I fucking had one right in front of me for three months and I couldn't even see it. (laughs) Of course, now we went from hating this ugly dish to lamenting the fact that we don't have any more of it. Because we could see more weird slip on what little we have of the rim. And I'm sure there's more writing and it's okay. It's fine. It's okay. We're lucky to have a date and a bird. <laughs> right? Right? You wish you had a date and a bird. That's, that's a good time. Yeah. Matt has a date and a bird whenever he wants. Oh. <laughs> anyway, a final thing that we found in the privy, which is going for some people to be the most exciting thing of all. During the last moments of the second sift, really, yeah. I can't remember which one of us found this in the sifter. I think it was me. Sometimes we tell each other things and then I can't remember if it actually happened to me or if you said it. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I don't remember. It did stand out, though. This yeah. Piece, like- I remember picking it up and thinking it was an oyster shell. And I used my thumb to, like, scrape some encrusted sort of dried clay off of it. Clay, poop dirt, whatever. Um, And I was surprised when I did that because instead of revealing an oyster shell, it revealed a piece of pottery. You know, I've gotten so good at this whole sifting process that I do a pretty good job now of when I pick something up, I know if it's a shell or a piece of pottery. Yeah. 
But this one fooled me at first, which is how it fooled us the first time around. It was, mm-hmm. it's about, I don't know, an inch and a half, two inches big. And uh, as I scraped some more dirt off it, I saw that it was the foot of a small T-ball. And I think even at the time, right, before we put it into the container to take it upstairs, mm-hmm. I was like, you know, I don't want to get ahead of myself, but <laughs> this is the same color, the dark brown color right. of the Bodden and Morris stuff that we've cleaned up before. Mm-hmm. And it just reminds me of that. But I don't want to get ahead of myself. Like, I don't want to, you know... We, right. We've been doing this a long time, but we're still not experts. Right? We're not experts. So, and I don't want to be like, well, I found two pieces of Bonnet and Morris and then become that person who sees Bonnet and Morris in you, everything. You would be shunned from public life. <laughs> um, this, this People would be like, up. oh, God, it's Bonnet and Morris girl. She thinks everything <laughs> is Bonnet and Morris. She picks up blades of grass and is like, look, I found a Bonnet and Morris. So we brought it upstairs. And I immediately like took it out of the container and started cleaning it up. And it didn't take much. It was just no. like a couple of scrubs of the brush. And I like... She flipped out. I just- like, she started screaming <laughs> because sure enough, having pushed aside everything that was on the bottom, we could see, I won't say clear as day because it was still brown, but we could see the letter P. It was another piece of Bonin and Morris stuff right like super confirmed and obvious i couldn't believe it i was so fucking excited and then i looked at the quality of this little tea bullshit (laughs) and i could tell like it had also fallen in a fire Mm -hmm. which is also one of the reasons why it was hard to see it in the sift like it was even duller than it normally would be the edges were sort of burned but as i stared at it i went you know I think I have some more of this. And this is the thing, right? Melissa really handles all of the assembly. I tell people it's not because I'm lazy. Uh, It's because (laughs) in order to maintain this sort of mental database of everything, if we split up the duties, it makes it harder to locate and do what Melissa did at this very point. Right. Where having seen this now... It reminded her of another piece that didn't really fit into any other piles of things perfectly. Well, especially because it was also burned. Yeah. So when creamware or even salt glaze stoneware is burned, it's sort of harder to identify it because Mm -hmm. you can't tell what the surface used to be like. You can't tell what the color is much anymore. I had found a bunch of tiny little thin shards that looked burned and I remember thinking like ah fuck I can't figure out if this is creamware or like soft paste porcelain like pearlware something I don't know what it is like it's ruined right nothing we could do I'm just gonna put it in this box and leave it alone and I'm not gonna think about it unless I can figure it out at a later date and when this t-bowl came through with the pee on underneath suddenly I was very motivated to go (laughs) through that pile and see if any of it matched up to the t-bowl foot that we had and it did it's not whole by any means it's very fragmentary i mean some of these pieces are basically the thickness of like eggshell like it's so thin it's gonna be really hard to glue it back together (laughs) properly but you can see the decoration on the outside 
And then as I was going through this pile, I found another little tiny foot of a saucer that was made of the same stuff. And as I examined the tea bowl and this tiny saucer, I saw that there was a little dog, like a little drawing of a dog on both of them. And the drawing was identical. In fact, it was so identical that it triggered a thing in my head that's like, this is fucking transferware. None of this is confirmed. None of this has been actually shown to another expert because this all happened fairly recently and we haven't had time to like take this stuff to, I don't know, Rob or Debbie or Ron or some Mm -hmm. of these people to like 100% confirm what we found. But if the instinct is correct, it is possible that we have discovered the first evidence of Bonin and Morris experimenting with brand new cutting edge ceramic techniques like transferware on the stuff that they're creating locally. Yeah. So fucking cool. Like we immediately sent pictures to Rob and I think he like responded back and was like, you are making history yet again. (laughs) (laughs) I'm just like, oh my fucking God, I want to cry. I had a couple people were like, Go find some more Bonin and Morris. Like, jokingly. Like, we did. <laughs> I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry that we're so fucking lucky. I have no idea how this is happening. <laughs> like, like, from our experiences, if you look at our stats, like, half the privies we've dug have <laughs> Bonin and Morris in them. Bonin and Morris is, like, super common, actually. <laughs> oh, yeah. Found another one. Like, I'm so sorry, archaeologists who've been wishing for this their whole lives. I, um, it's it's not fair, and I apologize. <laughs> I think that's it for the the big list. Obviously, that's not everything that we found, and we are working on photographing and cataloging and tracking all of this stuff. It's going to be a long process, but like with everything else we found, we're going to make it very public. Uh, until then. A new adventure. We mentioned very early on that the one architect who wanted to work with us uh, owned a lot two doors down. Last summer, construction began on that lot for a building. And as they broke ground, you can probably guess what happened. (laughs) More on that next episode. I'm Melissa Dunphy. And I'm Matt Dunphy. And you've been listening to The Bog House. You can find out more about our show at boghouse.thehanna.org. The Bog House is recorded at the Hannah Callow Hill stage in Philadelphia. Our theme music is by Up Your Cherry. Subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to rate and review us if you like what you hear.